Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome today to the Beeson Podcast a friend of long standing in our school, Dr. Bruce Winter. Uh, Bruce is from Australia. He's back in Australia now as the principal of the Queensland Theological College in Brisbane. Uh, that's, um, what, uh, 500 or so miles north of Sydney, I'm guessing? That's right, yes. And Bruce um, was born in Australia. He's in Australia now, but his life has taken a very interesting turn of events in many ways. He's been a professor. He's been a pastor. Uh, for a number of years, he was the warden of Tyndall Hall it, in uh, Cambridge, a great research center for biblical studies. It's where we got to know him. He's been a visiting professor almost on a permanent basis. Every year, we love to have Bruce come by, talk with students, share with them out of his life and out of the Word of God. And it's just a joy to welcome you back now to Beeson Divinity School once again. Thank you very much, Timothy. It's a great joy to come back because uh, this is my, uh, my American seminary. Well, you've had such a profound impact on our students over the years. Often when I talk to our our alumni and ask them, who has really meant the most to you at Beeson? Think back on your experience, and you're a name that very often is given as a part of that answer. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about. What what, what do you do to really connect with students in such a profound way that they remember it years and years later? But before you answer that question... Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your own spiritual journey, how you came to faith in Christ, and a little bit about your own background. So I came to Christ as a result of the silent witness of a Christian. His lifestyle just profoundly affected me in the government department in which I was working. And uh, after a period of time, as I watched him, I thought I'd give anything to be like that person. Mm. And I conclude he must be a Christian. And soon after, a friend I was staying with who was a Christian, uh, one night took me to visit another friend. And uh, he preached the gospel. I knew it was true. Uh, I'd seen it lived out, according to Ken, who was the friend in the government department. And uh, that began my <coughs> a great experience of, of being a Christian, of being involved in Christian service. Right from the beginning, we used to visit uh, prison. We used to go to old people. We would be on the corner and it was a very active church in which every Christian was a participant and every Christian had a ministry. And that had a profound effect on me. I was also interested in overseas students and that resulted after my theological training, working in Singapore for five years, going back to a seminary in Australia to teach. Five years again back in Singapore at the, at the theological seminary and then 20 years in Cambridge and now four years back in Australia. So that's my life. Yeah, but in between, a lot has happened to you um, to shape who you are. For one thing, you're you're a New Testament scholar of world renown, uh, and your special focus. What would you say? Uh, it, it's it's Christian origins. It's 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 bringing to light the historical context in which Christianity emerged as a living faith. Talk a little bit about your own research and and what led you into that field. Well, my my interest in research. I've always been interested in history. And uh, even as a young boy, I had my great interest. I had a research position in the government department. So research and history were two things I loved. And what I was most interested in was 
always discovering the context and the life uh, from ancient history. So my interest was really the question of culture, first century culture, versus cross-culture, the culture of the cross. What would it mean to be a Christian, to be brought up in Corinth and other places, to be programmed by that culture, then to come to faith in Christ? And what demands and what changes had to occur in order that I should live as a disciple of the Lord Jesus and be a, a fruitful and productive person? So to me, the first century challenge was whether or not you're going to create culture Christians or whether or not Christians were going to be Christians of the cross. That was the great tension I see it in the New Testament right all through its pages. And uh, if I might say so, I think it's also a challenge today. Yeah, well, talk a little bit about that, how uh, you as a professor, as a teacher, as a theologian, uh, see the p- position of the New Testament and the history behind it and the the context and the culture of the early believers in the light of the challenges we have today. Yes. Well, the first century in which Christianity was born, in fact, soon after, there came a, a movement in peop- which people were not learning for living, but they were learning for earning a living. And that was a major paradigm shift in terms of education. So there were Christians, people who became Christians, who for whom... Life was all about the pursuit of living in luxury, of, of succeeding in life, and we have actually some good records of people who were boasting about the ultimate ends of the education process. And it's called the second sophistic. It's really about the orators, the people for whom values didn't matter. Presentation was everything. Spin was the nature of what uh, communication was about. And entertainment was the ultimate intention of all the talk. Now that was so different from the philosophers. And as a result, you've got a movement away from value systems of right and wrong. You've got an interest in personal pursuits of happiness, of achievements, of gaining significance in terms of what you could achieve in life. And uh, that was in stark contrast to the philosophers. And its footprints are seen in the lives of early Christians and there are some of the great tensions in the New Testament, in the Pauline letters, and also in Peter, uh, in his uh, second Peter. Uh, you've got the same issues occurring. And that's what I see today, that we've had a cultural shift in our own context in the Western world between right and wrong, of values that count, of concern for others. <clears throat> and people are now earning just for earning a living and uh, enjoying all the pleasures and delights and all the things of life. So it's about your best life now, if I may borrow a term from mm-hmm. a particular book. <clears throat> and the New Testament is concerned with, Paul is concerned with the question of uh, Christians living, um, being conformed not to this world but to the will of God. Or as Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be a disciple. And what I give will cause your life to stand. It'll be like a house built on a rock. And that's in contrast to what we have in in the development among some of the false teachers, that that life is all about my pursuits, my interests, and not about the fact of how do I live in a way that's a blessing and uh, how do I, as it were, uh, run the engine (coughs) according to the maker's manual. That's what I see today, but there's Mm -hmm. an interest in perhaps conversion, but not in the business about 
How do I live according to the will of God so that I belong to what I call the 30, 60, 100 club? What's that? That's the club that Jesus founded in the parable of the sow and the seed. The productive people are the people who are 30, 60, 100. Uh And they're the people. Others are caught up with the pleasures and riches of this life and they come to nothing. Whereas what Jesus is looking for is members of what I call his exclusive 30, 60, 100 club. Great. Now, in the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, uh, very early in his his, uh, work as a theologian of the Word of God, made this distinction between what he called a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. The theology of glory was about self-actualization. It was about spiritual self-aggrandizement. It was about puffing up, whereas a theology of the cross was about being empty. It was about being nothing. And I wonder if you think that is a parallel in the Reformation time to what Paul meant when he said, God forbid that I know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then how does that relate to where we are today in terms of the church, not just individual believers, but the community of faith? Well, uh, I'd never made that connection with Luther, but I think it's a very important connection. I must go back. (coughs) I did lecture in Reformation history one time. I'd not made that. It's a very, very significant way a uh, very significant dichotomy in the first century. I think in, this, in, in the church today, we have what I call people who are suffering from pneumonia. They simply sit in the pew, they sit up, look up, sing up, pay up, stand up, and then they, they maybe have coffee or at least bid other people to the restaurants for the best seats. And that's basically, and that perhaps coming to a Bible class uh, and a Sunday school class and maybe some of you, that's what it means to be a Christian. So it's all done for you or what you might call recliner Christianity. We recline, we pay, other people do things for us. Now, that's a very significant change, as I see it, from the times in which uh, I think of Billy Graham's preaching. I became a Christian uh, just before the Billy Graham crusade came to Australia. And, and he would talk about the fact that if anyone's going to become a Christian, you must deny yourself. Mm. Take up the cross every day. You may suffer for being a Christian, and I don't hear that sort of talk going on today. And what I think has happened has been a subliminal paradigm shift in the culture, and therefore it's come into the church, where we are creating sort of a comfort zone form of Christianity. And then God on Sunday, and then me for the rest of the week, and my goals, my pursuits, my interests, and not the interests of the kingdom. So I see that as, as, as a major change And going back to Australia after being away for some 25, 30 years was a real shock to see that there were many churches like this with this comfort zone Christianity. And they were orthodox, they were preaching the Christian uh, message of salvation. But it was really um, basically making people feel good and uh, doing a little bit what someone does in a rather larger stadium in Houston, Texas. Mm. simply about your best life now Jesus is the icing on the cake you've got the swipe card which will work at the gates of heaven <clears throat> you get that through the cross and now it's the pursuit of your own personal goals and dreams and things like this What would you say about the Christianity in Australia versus uh, what you see here in the United States? I mean, I understand uh, there's a very s- relatively small percentage of Australians who are professing Christians, nothing like we have, say, uh, in American evangelical life. Uh, some 60% of our population claim to be evangelical Christians. So um, 
how do you draw those parallels? It seems, Larry, you've got a small minority trying to live out the Christian faith, maybe accommodating. Here you have a culture that is professedly Christian, but the authentic uh, root of it uh, seems hard to find sometimes. Well, I think we Australia has been influenced very much by America, as you know, from the Second World War when America came to our rescue um, and uh, Britain sent all our troops off to Burma and we were left in a very vulnerable position. So Australians have been very well disposed towards America. And I think there have been American cultural changes which are good, which Australia absorbed. Uh, We do have uh, American television. We have Benny Hinn, we have Joyce Meyer, we have uh, Joel. Uh, You know, we used to have Robert Shuler and... um, all those sorts of people. So you get all the same kind of programming we exactly do over here. Exactly the same, actually. Mm-hmm. We do get Michael Yusuf, for which I'm glad. Uh, he, he is Australian, in, isn't he? No, well, he, he's, he's from Egypt, in Australia. He was a studied in Australia. Australia. Yeah. Australia. Mm-hmm. And as a, we say in Australia, he's a good bloke. That's a way of saying he's a, he's a he, man, same thing, okay? And so I think, um, so there has been that sort of influence that's come. And there is... Uh, there's also been a growing affluence. My state in Queensland used to be called the Cinderella State, but now it's got the glass slipper on its foot, and mm. it's very affluent. So Christians have caught affluenza, as I call it. The affluence of the age, that's sort of grabbed hold of them. And so they're looking for a lifestyle, sometimes a church, that is orthodox in its preaching, at, uh, in terms of the gospel, but is not... Is not demolishing the culture. And Paul says, you've got to pull down every argument, every stronghold that rises contrary to the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10, and bring every thought captive in obedience to Christ. So he talks about the idea of the Romans, the citadel, that the Roman battering ram had to keep hitting and hitting until it collapsed. And my feeling about the Australian church, and maybe I'm not sure here, is that if you don't pull the stronghold down, you don't bring people in the congregation's thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. Mm. So the culture can program them subliminally during the week and convince them about their best life, all those sorts of things. And they sit on Sunday, and the biblical text is like water on a duck's back. It doesn't penetrate. So we've got to think about demolition in order to reconstruct. And that's part of my interest in understanding the first century world. What did Paul have to demolish in order to... In other words, for people to come like those who were in the citadel, they had to, the citadel collapsed, and they had to come and kneel in obedience to the general. Our thoughts have got to now become captive to Christ and his revelation, his truth. So that's the agenda I see in preaching. And if you don't demolish, you'll never reconstruct. And people will just remember uh, the nice time on Sunday, maybe a verse or two, but there's no transformation and uh, therefore, if we give a, cri- a right diagnosis of the problem from the culture, so you've got to be as good exegetes of the culture at times as we are of the New Testament. And sometimes just looking at the first century background and the problems they had, it's not ha- too hard to do the 21st century jump. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the goals of our school, in fact, it's, it's the motto that Ralph Waldo Beeson left us, is that we should be a school who trains pastors who can preach. And yet in much of contemporary evangelical life, preaching seems to be valued less and less, Mm. kind of pushed to the margin, just a few minutes, uh, almost textless, Mm. even though the preacher sometimes has the Bible in one hand. You don't hear very much of the text. Uh, Talk about what would you say to 
to preachers, young preachers in particular, who are beginning their pastoral ministry in terms of a kind of routine of being faithful to the Word of God, understanding the context and the culture, and yet delivering a message that is piercing and convicting at the same time. Well, I think one of the things, we live in a communication age, so the issue of uh, films, uh, DVDs, all these sorts of things, they've been accessible now much more than ever before. And it is true that the literary world and the world of of, uh, films are often at the borderline of cultural changes that are occurring, and they sometimes tap into those. So it seems to me that a preacher is someone who needs to be reading the newspapers, reading some of the major thoughtful journals that come out, looking in the media, and becoming someone who, who, who knows how to read what is happening and why it's happening. Yeah, now you, and you've done this in your teaching. Uh, I know you've encouraged students here when you've taught at Beeson to see films, think about them, reflect on them. And also I remember you're using, is it the William Golding novel, The Spire? That's right, yes. Yeah, why, why is that such an interesting book? Well, it's all about a, a, a man in a cathedral, a minister in an Episcopal cathedral, whose aim is to build this enormous spire as a sign of prayer to God. But he does it at the expense of the lives of the people who do it. And it's a very telling story of really, ultimately, what Jeremiah 45 says, Are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. He is seeking great things himself. He wants to become probably a bishop. And so, in the end, this spire collapses. But the sad thing does that also his life collapses and the lives of others about him. So I found that a very perceptive novel and whether or not um, or how this can apply to people who feel in the in careers in life you're meant to have goals and objectives and things like this. And there are people in the ministry who sometimes feel that it's about getting bigger churches, becoming sort of really <clears throat> doing something unique, you know, breaking the frontier, the, the American frontier thesis. You break a new area, you become a hero. And so... You've got that sort of ambition. And I think that it's in the first century the disciples go up to Jerusalem. They've got ambitions for a seat either side of Jesus in the kingdom. And yet after the cross, after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, you don't find the apostles fighting for preeminence as to who is the greatest. Mm. <clears throat> and I think, you know, American culture is a very competitive culture. You've got to compete and win. And it does award winners, and Australia's like Australian cultures like that, and so that's what we've got. And it's very easy for that that model to transfer through its, itself into people in the ministry who are starting out. Uh, they're thinking about uh, where their future steps could lie, and how it is that they could do something that would really wow the crowds and bring the large numbers in. And it's not necessarily about people becoming sheep, but it's more about sheep stealing. It's not about, it was about the gospel. Mm. So that's, uh, that, that to me is one of the great, one of the great challenges that you've got of, of people going at the ministry, and it's the text I've preached on on a number of occasions, are you seeking great things for yourself? There is a kingdom about to collapse uh, with, under, with Jeremiah's great prophecies, and also the new promises of the kingdom that are going, is ultimately going to come. All these wonderful things. And then you've got Jeremiah's research assistant who has a personal agenda. 
and he's really upset by the message because he, he doesn't like it and he can see that what's in it for him and the answer is nothing. Mm. So I, uh, I, I think that the question of ambition is a, is a real issue in Christian ministry. Bruce, what do you say to people who would say to you, having heard uh, the kind of uh, remarks you've just made, you're just too critical, uh, you're, you're too harsh. Uh, shouldn't we be nice and uh, affirming of what we see around us instead of bringing this kind of edgy uh, critique uh, to Christianity today? Well, I think the preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Mm. <clears throat> That's my <laughs> aphorism on that issue. <clears throat> and we want to... And the Bible, Bible comforts, and it does con- affirm and it does confirm the work of Christ and the security of Christian believers. So there's a right area of affirmation. And that affirmation is more like a safety net at times in the New Testament so that people can tackle issues in their lives. And the reason is, the reason that, that, the, that we want to be assessing because we don't want to be conformed to this present age in view of the mercies of God that we've been rescued by the death of God's Son. I have an only son. I wouldn't let him die for anyone. Mm. Why should God deliver up his only begotten son? That is amazing. Mm. And if God has done this for us, we can never be the same people again. And I, I sort of feel that the, that the question of, of, of progress in the Christian life, of transformation, like pilgrim's progress, there is such a thing. And, and what are the obstructions to progress? And often it is you've got the problem of the citadel, the business of the cultural programming or reprogramming that goes on so easily. So I think that uh, it's like with our children, if we love them, we discipline them, and God also disciplines his children, so they won't be condemned with the world. So there are sometimes things in preaching uh, which are very important, but what I think is wonderful is Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says they're sanctified in Christ. He wants to give them the security net to be able to have confidence to deal with the issues that are critical issues to their growth and development and the spiritual life of the church. So there is a there is a, uh, a comfort in the gospel. Absolutely. And there is a uh, constructive kind of engagement, but it, it also includes the first words of Jeremiah who came to tear down, as pluck out as well as build Absolutely, up. Absolutely, yes. And, and so, you, you know, Luther talks a lot about, I'm going back to Luther again, law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And it's not as though there's all law in the Old Testament and all gospel in the New, but yeah. this is a message of God throughout the scriptures. That's right. The message of judgment, which we must hear and take mm-hmm. on board, mm-hmm. and the message of forgiveness and the message of grace and new life that comes in Christ. And you have to have a both-and gospel, not That's an right. either-or one. That's right. And I think, I mean, I think like 2 Peter chapter 1, you've got this whole idea that to your faith you must add virtue, mm. and to virtue knowledge, and knowledge uh, self-control. And so the Christian life has to be worked at. And I think that's sometimes the view, that you just get the swipe card, and now you can just ride in the bus, and someone else past will drive it for you and you'll ultimately get to your destination. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question, and it really has to do with your methodology as a teacher, uh, a mentor. That's really what you are, I think. Uh, I noticed this when you were the warden of uh, Tyndall House in, in Cambridge uh, because it's a great research institute, one of the best known in the world, wonderful resources for academic study. 
But as the leader of that community, you were always concerned to draw those students into a life of worship and prayer and faith and community, and not simply to have uh, you know so many heads uh, busy at work at their at their various carols. Uh, and you've done the same thing here at Beeson when you've come and, and taught for us. Uh, you take students on camping trips. You spend time with them outside of class. You invest in their lives. Uh, say a little bit about what makes a teacher a mentor. And you use this phrase, we teach not for information but for transformation, which I like very much. What's behind that? And what's your secret, if you have one, you could share? Well, I think my concern is that people sometimes in, come into seminary training and they have problems undealt with, and they put them in a suitcase, and they just gets put away. And my worry is that when they go into the ministry, that suitcase is going to burst out. And that was also true for people doing their PhD at Cambridge. They were adding knowledge. Uh, their heads were getting bigger. Sometimes their hearts were shrinking. What I call, uh, we were creating tadpoles, you know, people with big heads, and that's about it. One of my concerns was, this is a last... A train stop on the journey of life or the journey of ministry. So seminary is so critical to see people uh, deal with issues and come to grips with things that they've not really come to grips with in the past. And it's sort of like you're just in the last train stop and what you do at that train stop is so critical it'll determine what the rest of the journey is like. Mm. So that's what drives me. It'd be very, It's very sad that having invested so much effort and money in, in the business of teaching people, there isn't the transformation. And, and therefore, there's an opportunity within the community context over a period of, say, three or four years for people to be confident in the end to know, look, I can address this issue. And there is a solution. And there's that, 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 that as it were, things can begin again. The past doesn't have to determine the future. And I think if pastors, that happens to people in seminary training, it's going to happen to people in their teaching in the church. They're going to do the same thing for people. <clears throat> because you look at the destructive things that can happen with dysfunctional families and things like this, and yet when the problems are dealt with, what an enormous blessing it is to the next generation, what is a great blessing to the church. So we are, that's what really drives me, the issue of unresolved problems. You can tackle them. Uh, and that things can begin again. The past does not have to determine the future. It's a great word of hope on which to conclude. And I've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Bruce Winter, our friend and guest at Beeson Divinity School. God bless you, Bruce, and all of your work in ministry for Christ. Well, thank you very much, Timothy. It, it's my privilege to be able to come back to Beeson and to be able to talk to you today. We want to invite you to attend our Biblical Studies lectures here at Beeson Divinity School this year, February 1 through 3, our special guest will be Dr. Dale Bruner, an outstanding New Testament scholar and author of a world-famous commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Bruner is a wonderful communicator of the Gospel message, and we invite you to come with other friends to hear him present our Biblical Studies lectures here at Beeson, February 1 through 3. For more information, visit BeesonDivinity.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.